This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by Galder's Gazetteer, a collection of advanced rules that raises money for cancer research. Find links in the show notes. And listeners like you, thank you for becoming patrons at patreon.com slash the Tome Show. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interviews show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Chasey Hurley, and in this episode, number 353... We're going to tell you everything you could ever want to know about the game world. It's villains' backstories, the heroes' tragic beginnings, how people make their coffee and tea, and more as we discuss how to introduce lore into your game. And joining us for this episode are a couple of returning guests. First up, she is the bright, shining star you see when you look toward the southeastern part of the United States. She is a gamer that puts everyone else to shame. It is Robert Stoddard. Welcome back. Hi, Jeff. <laughs> and also, our second returning guest is the gamer with the jazziest hands around. Welcome back, you any of our guests. Let <laughs> me back. <laughs> Which is, of course, a reference to his Twitter handle. Do you, do you jazzy <laughs> no, hands? no, don't tell him. <laughs> oh. Just let him wonder. <laughs> Just let him wonder. <laughs> so in this episode... In addition to jazz hands, we're going to talk about <laughs> how to present lore in your game. Setting lore, historical lore, character lore, adventure lore, villain lore, and any other sort of information that goes beyond what creature is trying to kill the PCs and in what place. Uh, before we really dig into it, I want to let people know about Galdor's Gazetteer. This is an almost 200-page book for 5th edition D&D that is all about bringing new advanced rules such as new things to do with your action uh, and new martial abilities. It also has all sorts of, of class updates and spells and a few adventures, all to help support bringing these advanced rules into your game. Um, so if you're ready to move your game to the next level, check it out. And uh, the money that is raised, the pro- proceeds go to the Cancer Research Institute, I think is it, um, and so that helps, uh, you know, do a good thing as well. So please check it out. There will be links in the show notes at thetomeshow.com that you can use to find um, the book as well as the story of Lawrence, the gamer who inspired the book. The wizard Galder has traveled to many, many worlds. Along his journey, he took notes on the mysterious and fantastic things he encountered. Many of the secrets he learned are chronicled now in Galder's Gazetteer, published by Zipperon Games. Galder's Gazetteer is a 5th edition D&D supplement that is an advanced expansion of the game rules, including new actions, conditions, and martial options that are all fully integrated into new classes, archetypes, ancestries, feats, spells, and DM tools, plus adventures for both 5th and 15th level to highlight these advanced rules options. Galder's Gazetteer was inspired by a gamer named Lawrence, who is dying of a rare form of cancer, and wanted his character to be remembered in the annals of D&D lore. 100% of the proceeds for this book are donated to the Cancer Research Institute. You can find Galder's Gazetteer at drivethroughrpg.com at the regular price of $35 for a PDF or $47 for a print-on-demand physical copy. You can find more about Lawrence's story at lawrencescampaign.blog. Check out the show notes for links. All right. So let's get into our discussion about lore and how to how to introduce how to bring in lore, how to introduce lore. Like there's a lot of things that people could know in a game. Um 
And there are lots of ways of bringing it into the game. And some of them are arguably more effective than others. Let's put it that way. Um, so I think it'd be good to start with when we when we say lore, what are we talking about? Because there's lots of information a DM has to communicate. Like literally that is the DM's job is communicating different types of information. Um, what type of information are we talking about when we say lore? What do you think? Everything the player can assume to be true. That's actually probably a better definition than what I was thinking of. But oh yeah, that's a yeah. really good definition, actually. It's really excellent. Yeah, it's broad enough. Uh, I, I think maybe there might be a few pocket cases, but I don't know that I can get closer than that. That was <laughs> just right off the that's, bat, setting quite the tone. Right? And that covers like I was about to say, well, history and connections between things, and all of those are kind of covered by that. But that's that's really the main function. Mm-hmm. It it also Other. sort of. It also sort of differentiates between, um, and we can discuss whether this is a useful distinction, but um, it sort of tells you that for each player, what it, what they consider lore might be different, right? So a character's backstory mm-hmm. to that character's player is their backstory, but is lo- because they can assume it, but is lore to the other players at the table because they may not know about it and it may, you know, end up contributing to the story or what have you. That's yeah. I might might refine that just the tiniest bit further to say that the part where backstory becomes lore is the part where it intersects with the history of the setting. Yeah, sure. Or where elements of the setting that you might not otherwise assume, Mm. piggybacking off Tracy, uh, inform the backstory. Because if it's just, well... um, I'm an orphan who was found on the street. Sure. Okay, that's not lore. If it's, <laughs> I was found on the streets of uh, what used to be Sire right after the morning, uh-huh. then it becomes lore. Sure. Because you probably have like some crazy connections to all sorts of stuff at that point. So, yes. And there's a part of me that kind of wants to yes and... Uh, the the answer here, because I feel like there is there are things that I might consider to be lore that is setting information or lore that impacts what I might do as a DM. It might be ancient lore or it might be the villain's motivation in an adventure or whatever that I might consider to be lore that the PCs don't know but can discover. Is that would would that be included or do we want to more narrowly define it? Um, with Tracy's very excellent definition. Do you mean like secret information, like mysterious secret occult information about the setting, or what? What do you? Uh, can well, you give an example? It could be. It could be. Um, you know, it may not be commonly known what the politics of okay. the gods are, but it is uh-huh. lore that affects the setting and affects the story that might be revealed through play. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the villain, like. Uh, Strad von Zarovich's motivations are definitely lore. But the, um, but the players wouldn't and, know that starting off. Yeah. Uh, but um, uh, at the start of play, the players get in a fight with a dude in a tavern and he becomes a major campaign villain. His motivations are pretty straightforward. The revenge against the party, it's probably not lore. But the players also know that from the get-go. They can or, assume or, that. Yeah, or it is lore, really but it's easy. obvious. So. 
So, so I'd sure. so I'd probably also also narrow it a bit to say it has in some way to interact with the setting and um, and secrets and like Tracy said things you couldn't necessarily assume but could dis- and then add but could discover. Okay. Um, and and well, yes, there there is the the second lever of. Do the players have to discover it for it to be meaningful and impact the game? The answer to which is obviously no, but it's better if they can. <laughs> sure. And and one of the interesting things there with the the secret part, as long as whatever they do assume doesn't break too much from that, is you actually allow them to feel a little bit what their characters would feel if their characters wouldn't have known either. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which can get interesting. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so it's also, if we start with Tracy's definition, it's it's the things about the setting that the characters are assumed to know or could discover. Is that uh, that the that the players shouldn't assume some of it? The characters might know or right. might should know, but okay. the players coming to the table, you can't assume that they know it. Okay, like like an easy one would be. I mean, sorry, just to take a step back first. Because this comes up a lot in fiction, right? As we're reading yeah. fiction, um, we bring a lot of what we already know about our world into that world unless we're told otherwise. Like, mm-hmm. it's really hard otherwise for, for authors to get you to think differently. So that's one of the reasons that I, I, I um, uh, said it that way. So if, for instance, you definitely want a 10-day week, you need to let that let everyone know that up front. They should not assume seven days uh, to be a, for a common example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Common because the and Forgotten again, Realms is such a, a big setting in fifth edition <laughs> and has a ten day week. I was gonna say it gets very complicated when you run into a setting like Forgotten Realms where uh, now you might have to ask, okay, um, does my player know that beholders exist, or does my character know that beholders exist? If you know any, because th- somebody coming to the table may know a ton of stuff about the Forgotten Realms, but their character may or may not, and right. it's difficult to know what they should. But a lot of that is, a lot of that, even if you know it, you can't necessarily assume that it's true, because um, uh, there are lots of games that might be horribly thwarted if, say, the DM has read the Icewind Dale trilogy. <laughs> and the players have read up to homecoming of R.A. Salvatore's stuff, and the players are assuming that, uh, oh, that's when this is set. This is set like at mm. the end of all the of all that trilogy, and the DM mm-hmm. thinks that like, oh wait, there's only one drow on the surface. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, and and that gets starts getting into whole other issues of canon and what kind of lore we accept in our games and and what kind of lore we decide to ignore and and how and when to do that which honestly could and probably should be its own topic at some point (laughs) totally separate topic yeah Yeah. um and so there's a lot of information right worlds are complex and detailed uh whether or not the dm or the player's know all of those details or have created those details or whatever is a whole other thing, right? Um, but there's a lot of potential lore, right? You could you could go everywhere from from uh, Ed Greenwood who has written 
literal books, just with all kinds of detailed lore, uh, ready and available in his mind at a moment's notice, um, that he could tell you what is underneath the fourth stone on that path behind that person's house in, in Evermeet, um, because that's his level of, of lore knowledge, right? Um, but it could also be the the DM who just sort of introduces a small setting and says, we're in this village and, and I'm just going to make it up as I go. Uh, there is no canonical lore uh, in this setting and everything in between, of course. Um, I have certainly seen and heard of the DMs who are very, very excited and passionate and proud of their setting, writing up a, a 15 or 20 page campaign guide and handing it to their players as their initial way of introducing lore. What do we think about that? So, uh, I'm also pretty heavy in the LARP, so the, the culture packet is not a foreign concept to me, and there are games for which um, Sure, a culture packet would be helpful. Why not? It now, fortunately, you have me on and not Brandis, who would now go into a tirade <laughs> about. But players won't read anything. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. Some players will read, but my comment is: don't be annoyed when they don't. Right. Uh, what What I did was I kind of did that, but I put it on a wiki. Um, actually, he did the same thing. And I said, hey, you don't actually have to read anything on here. A lot of it will come out. Or just ask if you're not sure about something your player should probably know. But I'm going to go ahead and provide it so that you can reference it. And then hopefully in my game, the stuff here will actually be relevant so you'll want to. Yeah, so that's, I think, a really important sort of distinction, right? Is is if I get a 15 to 20 page setting primer... And the DM includes, read what you want. It's just, you know, if you feel like this level of immersion, great. Is a very different uh, experience than if I just get the packet without the disclaimer. Because without the disclaimer, and, and this is not my style, but I some people un- enjoy this, undoubtedly. Um, without the disclaimer, then what that packet says to me is, this is 15 pages of stuff that I have to know in order to tell this story and play this game, Right. So I, I think it is fine. I don't know that I would ever do it, but I think it is fine if you want to give the giant packet to your players. Um, you know, one hopes that you know your players well enough to know that they would enjoy that. Um, but the disclaimer that Rabbit mentioned is so important, right? Well, because what we're going to talk about is how else you do this, right? right? And one hopes that this isn't the only way that your players can get this information. Well, and, and frankly... It kind of doesn't matter. I'm going to keep coming back to what Tracy said at the beginning because mm. it's such a great idea. It is, I, I think it is a mistake on the part of the DM, even if you've handed out this packet and you've and you said, no, this is vital. You must know this. Do not assume that they're going to know it because they have no context yet. This is going to sound like a totally tangential story, but once upon a time I worked for lawyers. And I worked for two different ones, and one of them would tell me, do these things in this order. And I messed it up every single time for a month. The other lawyer took me aside and said, okay, for these kind of cases, you have – here's what happens. This one goes to the judge. This one goes to the other party, and this is why. 
I never forgot it again. Mm-hmm. When you're starting a campaign, the players have no context for any of this information. None whatsoever. It doesn't connect to anything. It doesn't link to anything unless you are asking them, hey, take this into consideration when you're creating your character. And that gives them some kind of hook into it to to care about bits of it. But they're not going to remember all of it. They're going to remember the parts that are that they're interested in that they've decided should be relevant to their character. So go ahead and go forward with just assuming that they're going to be big parts of this they're not going to know. And the only way for it to stick to them is going to be the context. Um, it, now, providing that, again, with disclaimer will be useful because when you say something that references, even if they've skimmed it, it might trigger something in their head to go, oh, wait a minute, look, look, look. Oh, yeah, it, it, it totally comes up over here. But definitely don't do the, I gave you the packet. <laughs> <laughs> well, why not? Yeah. Well, because, and the other thing that's kind of interesting in this discussion, at least to me, is that this idea that we see, at least I see over and over again, people who like want to play in another world, and usually it's a world from a novel. So they read a novel, mm-hmm. they really enjoyed that, or it's maybe it's a movie, and they're like, I want to bring that world to life. But the hard part is that's something that they read or read or watched for enjoyment that is telling a narrative story. Whereas when we try to do it with our own homebrewed worlds, it's like uh gazetteer like it's it's just it's not a story that we're doing it's just a bunch of information that we're dumping on a page and then expecting people to to find meaning in it's a history book i mean we don't want to admit that as the dm writing it because it's our creative men it's a history book (laughs) yeah one of my things is secondary world content and i i like to write you know books poetry art whatever plays even that aren't from this world they're from a different world uh the easiest thing is of course history books and the hardest thing is actual fiction uh but but the bottom line is unless it connects to something the person cares about just like you said it's not really gonna stick and even if we are let's say we are running in a non-homebrew world we decided to take mad max and put it in a game uh and we're doing mad max fury road and I've everyone's watched before. it and everyone loves it. <laughs> We're still going to cling to very different things about yeah. that movie. Yes. And you, and I, I guess my advice for if you're doing something that's already established, have a conversation about mm. what's canon quote unquote, and what isn't before it's part of your session zero. Because otherwise, uh, people are going to be very unhappy about, hey, this isn't focusing on my favorite part. Right, because it could be like for Mad Max or something. It's like the the vehicles. Like I, 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 like most of the players could be like the vehicles were the thing I really wanted from that. And then other people are like, well, actually, I just want to do the really awful lords that are, are like hurting people and stuff like that, and make it a really gritty campaign. And those people are going to meet, and it's not going to be pretty. Yeah. And someone else just wants to be pajama bard all day. <laughs> <laughs> But me, I'm. I was, gonna, I was gonna raise my head too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, um, I think the point about uh, uh, about 
you know, if you're doing Mad Max, different people are going to have taken different things from that setting. That is super particularly true if we're taking existing IP and creating mm-hmm. it. But that's always true, right? I'm four years into my podcast, which is a homebrew world, and I am still finding out that the players, like, have different opinions about the world history. Yep, you heard me. Different opinions about the history of the world. Like, it just, everyone is going to see and hear and cling to different things. And so, you know, as we continue this discussion, whatever method, you know, you land on to do your your quote-unquote lore dumps or what have you in your games, just be ready for, you know, nobody's going to know the world like right. you, right? And everyone is going to do it a little bit different. So be ready for that. And, and, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about this a little later, but, like, use that. That's great news. That's mm-hmm. feedback. That's excellent. And I, I have news for you, Hineo. Um Oh, no. As, as a long-time <laughs> history educator... Uh-huh. Everybody has opinions about history yeah. of every, oh, of yeah. real world, so of things that happened last I week. So. I can't imagine what that's <laughs> yeah. like. Right. I've done no idea. No kidding. <laughs> so, but and, and so, I think one of the things that we're getting at is it's not necessarily bad to have a lot of lore prepared ahead of time, but don't have expectations for that lore being consumed by the players. Honestly, if I were you. And oftentimes I am because I'm the forever DM. Um, I I don't want to hand my players anything more than maybe a two-page document and say, here's what you need to do to get started. We can have conversations if you have questions or things that are going to help build your characters or whatever. Well, I'll fill you in. But I just want to give you the elevator pitch. And, and two pages is much longer than an elevator pitch. Um, but but I don't want to bog you down. And, and I definitely um, – well, I, I, I as the DM might have more lore in my head. I better have more lore in my head, right? And that helps me build a consistent and interesting and living world. Um, mm-hmm. But it doesn't have to be on front street for the players at any given time, right? And until or unless it becomes relevant to them, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, what I made available was uh, here are so the the homebrew setting I run in the most has is a you know major pantheon setting. If a god exists, you can worship it. Here's how that mostly works. So there, and then here are you know, local gods that you could potentially worship. There are feats around this, so it's relevant to your mechanics. Uh, and you should probably at least know some of these names because they're going to come up, but your character would definitely feel a way about this. And then um, the and then small write-ups, very short write-ups on um, the various nations that the players could be from, because uh, I was doing cultural benefits a very long time ago, and what cultural benefit you get from that. Because again, this impacts your character's mechanics. Mm. This also might impact their opinions about various things. Uh, and then that was it. And everything else, I figure, I'll give in play. Mm-hmm. The second half of that piece is someone in the chat, meant, and I apologize, I don't remember who, mentioned... Uh, you know, using the various info checks to do lore dumps, which I think, or lore right. reveals, which I think is great. That's mm-hmm. a little Benny. But the other part of that is, if it's something that the character would just know or should just know, 
I don't even roll. I just say, oh yeah, yeah, your character would total. Your character right. who is the priest of this deity would absolutely know right. common rights connected to mm-hmm. to that deity and such. I'm not going to make your roll. Right. Or you grew up in. You know, in the slums of this area, you probably know the names of all the heads of the criminal organizations, you know, and how they've changed. And I'm not going to give you a big list of them, but if it becomes relevant, then I'll just tell you. Right. I have a character in my current campaign, my adult campaign, that is a tiefling who is raised in the city of Dis. So when they run into uh, to free prisoners from a, a group of devils, actually last session last week, um, I did not make her make a check to find out like, oh well, what kind of devils would be in charge of pushing around these barb devils that, that you're seeing a lot of that might be hiding off in that in that cave or in that tent or whatever? Um, you just know that you know they probably have some master. It's probably something like. A bone devil or or something more, more powerful than that you know that's just something you know i don't even need you to have the skill because <laughs> that makes sense for you right um but i think it's also important because um, because i have been that dm in my younger less mature days um don't punish players for not knowing the lore um, I have been that dm who has like seeded lore early in a campaign that then was the key to solving the puzzle later in the campaign and I just wouldn't help them at all. Like I, I told you and I wanted to have that big reveal moment that you get from novels of, oh, the, the killer was that guy from chapter one all along. You know, I wanted to have that big sort of reveal, right? Um, but mm-hmm. it turns out that's a really bad way to run a game. Um, so, <laughs> so don't do that, right? And it's just how memory works generally at least according to Netflix series on the brain. <laughs> um, but, but I found it to be actually true. We memorize patterns and we remember things we expect to use later. If And I have done this too, by the way. You're not alone here, Jeff. Mm-hmm. But if you seed something, you're trying to play it off nonchalant because you want them to remember it, but you don't want to call it out as important because that might give something away. Like... Their brains are going to tell them not to remember it because they're so focused on their next goal. It's They almost can't remember it. Um, well, trying to get players to remember what you want them to remember and focus on what you want them to focus on is already a losing right. prospect. I make the joke about the well in The Last Refuge all the time. It's been four seasons and they still <laughs> want this well. And it was I pulled it out of Mike Shea's, like one of his various random encounter collections or whatever, oh. and they are convinced right so it's a losing proposition anyway so and and then if you add on we're trying to be cagey about it i mean i I understand look i i love a good mystery i love a good reveal but doing it in a role-playing game is is different than doing it in a novel you know and dust to dust i mean we ran the darn thing for six years and it was massively lore dense and one of my bigger regrets about it is that we didn't just give away more free information (laughs) And because part of and part of it was we had to tell people things multiple times, and every one of them heard it differently. And I actually had players arguing with me about mm-hmm. a specific point of lore because another player was so convinced it was this one specific <laughs> thing, and I'm sitting there like, I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> I am telling you. <laughs> 
I can look at your stats and I'm telling you that your character is 100% certain and I'm not trying to trick you. They know <laughs> that that other character is full of <laughs> It is the other thing. So that's like kind of an interesting um, tension that happens because the lore serves kind of two purposes. One is like trying to tell a specific type of story and trying to get people to go in a, um, in a particular direction, but also... Uh, it can help make them feel comfortable being a character in that world. So sometimes you'll get this case where you put lore for this one reason, um, but because it's more about them feeling comfortable role-playing, they may have totally interpreted it in a, in a different way, and it seemed to fit with everything, and they really want to go that way. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, no, I, I found, to, to, to piggyback off of uh, Rabbit there, I've ha- I have... I have never once in my many years of, of running games, I have never once regretted giving more information earlier. And I have oftentimes regretted, regretted holding on to it until it was like, oh, no, now it's almost not relevant anymore. And I need to have this this big, like really fakey feeling uh, unnatural lore dump in order for them to like really understand the momentousness of this epic fight at the end or whatever um that's so, that is facts yeah give it's more painful early. to me give it it's fast true. give it give it often you know so yeah yeah and and to the a big lore dumps do feel very unnatural and weird and awkward in part because um well it's like the first time you ever saw like the old school yahoo login page I showed it to my mom the first time she couldn't find anything on it because you, you don't know what's important. You don't know to go click on that tiny sign-in mm. link in the upper corner because everything's new. Everything is equally important to you. So if you give just this huge historical screed on things that, again, no context, going to go right out of the head because you can't figure out what's important to focus on. So small consistent chunks or small consistent bits ideally uh, relevant to whatever the party has decided to do right now well, um, and I find I find that there are exceptions uh, as there often are sometimes I have had not often I think you're right but occasionally I'll have a, a relatively big like the here's your here's the patron who's now going to give you this page long speech that I wrote uh, giving you all of the historical lore that makes the things that you've been doing for the last 10 levels, you know, uh, much more epic and, and whatever. And I've had that like completely fall on its face and be like, okay, they're bored. And I've had it be like, okay, it works because it's not necessarily lore that they need to remember in the future. It is lore that helps them understand the things that they've already been presented with. That's super important. And I would use it judiciously yeah. even then. Like I've, I'm, I'm getting close to the end of what is going to, I think, be a one to like seventeenth level campaign, and I've done it once. Um, yeah. That's about right. You know? <laughs> so. And if all the players are playing scholars, that's one thing because they have an expectation. But, but that that thing you mentioned about, hey, this is about that ten levels. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is tying together things that you already know that helps and it helps them feel awesome because especially when they can interject at any part about oh yeah because you want to let players be able to connect the dots 
of things that they've been accumulating. Mm-hmm. But they have context now. Right. They have you know ten levels of context. They can start to put these things together. If you had dumped it on them day one, it would. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a it's a hard line to walk, right? W- w- finding when something is too early and they have no context to you know just the right time to too late and it doesn't matter anymore to and then you know their considerations have we talked about this enough for them to care when I tell them have we talked about it so much that they've already sort of put it together and the reveal is there's a, it look this is hard if you are listening to this now know that this is like a difficult line to walk and get it just right but also know that it's okay if you don't get it just right right, right? your players are going to forgive you I've done similar things to uh, the the villain sort of giving you know the speech whatever but something that I've uh, done a couple of times now in, in a couple of different forms that I've found is if there is a good moment for that, hey, let's give them some lore that applies to the past. I've done a couple of different things where discovering that lore is the current quest, is the goal of the adventure, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're going around and they're looking and they're finding ancient journal entries mm. that tell them the secret history of the world or they meet an npc who can finally answer those two big right. questions that they haven't been able to figure out and it's just a straight up like they ask the npc the npc tells them um spreading it out into little chunks like that whether it's pages of a journal quest questions that the pcs ask the npc um you know things like that breaking it into chunks also helps with the they're bored they're losing their attention um and makes them feel involved in the discovery of this lore they aren't passively sitting there and listening to you they're actively going and looking for the pages and right. and then sitting there and listening and I, to you read them but anyway <laughs> and i think that's revealing of a, of what i think is really good strategy uh for revealing lore a lot of times is the players are actively seeking out the information. They're asking questions. They're delving into the library. They're doing the research. That is when they want lore. They're asking for lore. They, you know, and, and, um, you know, and, and I, I think it was Johanna mentioned that, like, and it's okay to get it wrong. And, and honestly, it's okay to get it wrong, A, because you're just human and it's fine. Uh, but it's also okay to get it wrong because sources are fallible. So maybe you got it wrong, mm-hmm. and that's because the NPC they were talking to got it wrong, right? One of the reasons oh. I don't write the 15-page uh, lore packet is because then I have to try to be consistent with it. If I just sort of keep some <laughs> yeah. bullet points, uh, I can make it up as I go. And if I say something wrong, it's like, oh, well, I guess that's the thing now. <laughs> oh, t- so two things. Uh, the first is uh, very much that. Uh, we... We learned very quickly that nothing exists until the PCs have seen it. So if you so, and this is very very hard. I may like setting consistency. You know, I'm the one who's going to be thumping the World Bible in, in whether I'm on plot or whether I'm running a game. But sometimes, um, what the player comes up with is cooler than what you had. Sometimes. Um, you had an idea for something, but actually it starts to not make sense. But as long as the players haven't, as long as you haven't put it in front of them, it can change up to that moment. And and some of the best stuff I've come up with was we put some things in front of the players, they weren't connected, and then we wound up backfilling later because it was convenient and it doesn't feel like it's backformed. It feels like, oh, wait, it was that way all along. But um, the 
the main thing about handing about handing out lore and how to make players care about it is uh, this is going to sound trite, but it's make it matter, make it a puzzle, make it um, the thing that you actually want is hit. It depends on you figuring out this information. Um, uh, make it so that the players all have to have a connection to something from the ancient past or from a particular place or a particular artifact because the more they're rooted into your world, one, the happier and more comfortable they'll be to Tracy's much earlier point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and two, the more they'll care about finding out more. I mean, we've had people tell, we had people tell us, you will never get players to care about your complete history of all the kings of <laughs> Kalamazoo and their complicated genealogy. And I um, have. We did. Uh, it mattered because they needed the lineage to find the current heir of a place. Or they needed the lineage to figure out some lines of an obscure prophecy that was going to drop death and hell on everyone's head and <laughs> they had to stop it um, but they needed to solve they needed to solve the prophecy first and to do that they needed information about what the prophecy referred to but if it doesn't connect to something they want some goal they have or the nature of the characters themselves then you're pushing Sisyphus's rock uphill. Definitely if you're trying to, like, highlight the lore and make them care about it. There are other ways, too, right? Like, if um, you can, for instance, have your random tables, if you're going to do random monsters, uh, you can have, you can pick those to tell the story you want us to tell without it being something that they have to care about, if that's Mm -hmm. something as a DM that you're trying to get across, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, If it's you're telling a story about the ecosystem of a dungeon, which I love that kind of stuff. Um, in that case, it doesn't matter if the players remember it, hook into it or not. It's just satisfying. Right. And it, and if you do have one of those players who's like, this doesn't even make sense, you can go, well, actually, <laughs> I thought about that. Yeah, yes. that's... Oh, go ahead, Tracy. I was going to say, when we did Lost City back for 4A for uh, Cobalt Press, uh, we had this whole thing. Um, spoilers. Uh, this, this city <laughs> had book fallen. book been out for and, 10 years, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just in case. Uh, and it was like, basically water was a key part of it. So we used water in a lot of different of the locations. Mm-hmm. And you could actually get the city to rise again if you could figure out how to get the, the water flowing. Um, so my big area was the area that had been the cistern. So uh, we had chules and uh, plant monsters, basically, like uh, fighting it out amongst each other. And you kind of had this uh, system where you could uh, break it apart. But it just had a really deep history that you didn't have to care about, but you could discover mm. that was there that went through I all like of that. the random tables. That's wonderful. Yeah, that's I- awesome. Show don't tell is uh, something we haven't really focused on but that's a great example that's one of the things i like doing a lot and and sometimes it's it's not even for lore that necessarily 
really matters, but it gives some life to the setting. Like, okay, you're going into the ancient ruins for this MacGuffin. The only thing you really care about is the MacGuffin. The ruins are completely unimportant to you, but you see these carvings on the wall, you see these old hieroglyphs or these paintings or whatever, and it tells the tale of this ancient king or whatever, which doesn't matter at all to you, but it adds some life to the world, to the setting. And you don't don't spend a lot of time on it, just mention it and move on, but like, yeah. Right, like, so one of the things, it was a floating city that would move around, so one of the ways we'd, we nod it to that was we put constellations that they would never recognize up mm. um, in a place where, like, it would help you navigate, so. I, I've never cool. met a I've never met a player or been a player that would see a complex mosaic on a wall or anything inscribed in stone and wouldn't immediately try to figure it out. No. Or at least even even players who are playing, oh, I'm a dumb doesn't care about words. You, you <laughs> sketch that stuff into a wall and they're like, somebody needs to read this. <laughs> yeah. Um, Hallie just said something interesting about um, like – Oh, one minute you're saying PCs met a bronze dragon, then a brass, and they got it reversed. Oh. And I did want to say, um, <laughs> at some point, you will say the wrong thing, or you will get something messed up, or you will get it backward, and it is something that you put in front of the PCs. Go ahead and be corrected. Go, oops, I'm sorry, I got that wrong, and move yeah. on with your life. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it, it is It is not a reason to freeze or freak yeah, out. Yeah. Just correct yourself and move on. There's a point where you can have you, you can chalk it up to unreliable narrators and there's a point where, where it's just faster and easier to say, sorry, I misspoke and move and get and don't dwell on it, right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, no, but you had yeah. also um, made me think of one of my other favorite ways to introduce lore. because um, you talked about etching mosaics on the wall and people really working hard to figure it out and that is i like incorporating lore into puzzles and traps like here's a puzzle and the solution is embedded in the lore of these are the symbols that represent various gods and you have to sort of figure out the order they need to be in based on what those gods represent or whatever and this is my chance like you don't have to know as a player but this is my chance to tell you a little bit about those gods and their symbols Right. Um, Absolutely. And and that way, you're the lore is very meaningful because they need it right now to solve the puzzle. Um, and but it's also being parsed out in a in a smaller sort of bite sized chunk. Like, let me give you this little bit of lore about the gods right now. I'm not going to go into the mythology of their relationships and the politics of the pantheons and all that. Right. But here's a little bit mm-hmm. of like, hey, this little weird sword stabbing through the the sun is the symbol of this god, and it symbolizes this thing about them move on right yeah um if you're if you are having trouble with uh doing some of the cool stuff that tracy just described like um you know this is an abandoned mine or something there's pics and things about that uh one thing that i sometimes find helpful is thinking about it like it's a top-down video game or or i'm playing you know or you're playing a uh, you're playing a video game and you walk into a room what is what are the um you know, setting objects, basically. What's the litter that you mm-hmm. expect to see around? Are there crates? Are, you know, if you're, and I mean, there are some people who aren't visual that this might not help, but thinking of it, um, using some of the, some video game 
kinds of mechanics for lore things, especially if it's what are the characters seeing right now, can be very, very helpful because when you're thinking of designing for a video game, um, it has to be fairly compact. It has to be fairly, uh, you know, get in, get out, you know, move quickly, have it bite-sized because you're trying to keep the, you know, keep the controller or mouse in the player's hand. Mm -hmm. One of the places where I really learned about that was in a a presentation at FIG Boston, a festival of indie games. And um, they had talked about environmental uh, storytelling and there was a game and I'm forgetting the name of it right now for, for iOS where uh, you were a spider solving puzzles and you're like on walls and on other places, but you got to see this, you were going through a house and you got to see the story of that house I as that you game, went room yeah. from room. Mm-hmm. Cool. That's yeah. cool. Uh, one of my favorites for that kind of thing is Portal. And the yeah. Portal Oh, yeah. The Portal games. Every time you see like a, a, a piece of the, of the wall pulled up and you go backstage and mm-hmm. the stuff that's back there is incredibly evocative. Um what the equivalent of that would be in a tabletop game harder to know but we also know that if you uh hinted a secret passage or if they find a secret passage they're gonna go down it exactly what i was gonna say it's much easier in a video game to have a a side area that's got a flavor thing if you take 15 seconds to describe it in a tabletop game. Clearly, it's where all the treasure is. So. <laughs> <laughs> Although, uh, uh, the Two of the Nine Gods and Two of Annihilation does this. There's a secret door that goes downstairs into, like, the workroom area, and you meet Withers and all of his notes, and you kind of learn the story of the tomb. because, And it's not just the big treasure dump area, right? It's, it's the work area. It's the workshop uh, where they're putting it all together. Um, so it can be done. Um, and I think one of the things that I haven't done often, but Mike Shea, who, who you mentioned earlier, um, talks about on Behind the Damn Screen sometimes doing, is he'll occasionally do like cutscenes where he'll describe a scene between the villain and somebody else that the PCs don't know about. But for the player's edification, like here's a little bit about what's going on, sort of like from a video game in the, in the way that we normally don't do in a role-playing game. But he'll do it in his role-playing game uh, and, and he swears by it. Uh, I mean, not all the time, but he does it on a fairly regular basis, it seems, uh, and it seems to work for him. And, and, and I would yes. say that one, just like any of the other lore dump uh, methods we're talking about, honestly, if you're, if you're lore dumping for more than a couple of minutes without giving the players a chance to interact or ask questions, <laughs> you're going too far, right? You're doing too much at once. Because if you can keep it short, uh, Masood, our, our DM for season 10 of Rivals, has done it at the beginning of every single episode this season. And it has done incredible things to us as players. We are constantly on edge because we know what's happening, but we are not allowed to know it and can't do anything about it. It's a great way to get your players to engage with lore. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, I could see that as a really good way to build tension. Mm-hmm. And, to, and it's very easy in in any game to uh, forget about the main plot or conflict because it doesn't feel immediate. Mm-hmm. And I could see that keeping it very immediate. Mm-hmm. But um, but you, you were talking about lore dumps and length. And um, this was one I did not hear when I was writing uh, 
when I was writing papers back in the day, but uh, uh, Brandis heard multiple times from multiple um, English teachers, which was that um, information paper, or in the context I was talking about it, the Devar Torah, uh, should be like a girl's skirt, uh, short enough to be interesting, but long enough to cover the subject. Yes. Mm-hmm. And yes, most of the, I, yeah. according to him, most of the professors he heard that from were female. Uh, I, I, I heard that from a, an English teacher I used to work with in a middle school who called it the bikini rule, but it was otherwise the same, the same yeah. rule. I, I think that applies well to to lore dumps as well. Mm. And I, although I, a bikini may be more appropriate than a skirt in the case of a lore dump. And I, I think something else that you said is important for gauging that length, which is, are you doing this lore dump and not giving the players a chance to interact, mm-hmm. right? Uh, because another thing that I was thinking of, and I, I have to give credit to uh, my partner, who, I, before we started this recording, I was like, I don't, I'm not sure what I'm going to say. I don't know that I'm very good at this. And he was like, well, you did it in this instance and in this instance. Right. And I was like, okay, fine. There, there, there's but a reason I, I asked you to come on this episode. I've listened yeah, to the well, show. So. <laughs> but, but something that you're familiar with, Jeff, I know because you're the one who turned me on to this and I used it to great effect in my game is the interactive Tome of Strahd is a perfect example of a journal of lore that your players can interact with so you can have much, much longer and detailed scenes of what is essentially history, just mm-hmm. history. I mean, mm-hmm. you you know, you can sort of deal with how it interacts with your the rest of your Curse of Strahd campaign however you want, but, um, but it gives the players a chance to directly interact with history and lore, which gives you, the DM, a chance to, like, do those meaty, detailed lore dumps because they're in it and they're affecting it or they're around it or they're whatever. They do sort of uh, flashbacks or whatever where the players get to play scenes of the flashbacks. Mm-hmm. One of the other things I've done that, that's worked well uh, is... Uh, for most of my current, uh, and I've done this for several campaigns, but for most of my current campaign, we started in Waterdeep. Waterdeep has, uh, you know, newspapers and whatever, right? Uh, and so I did a weekly, like, newsletter. And it was written up like the Waterdeep Wazoo, which is featured in Dragon Heist. And, and so you get a little bit of lore. And, and a lot of it is is lore that isn't necessarily pertinent to what's going on in the future in the game, but it gives them some context. It lets them see sort of like the consequences, the larger consequences of their actions. Um, you know, and then I stopped doing it partway through Curse of Strahd because it didn't make as much sense anymore. Um, and my life was such that I didn't want to write basically two pages of lore every single week. Uh, but I started, uh, after taking a little bit of a break, I started doing monologues now. Uh, and so I'm like, I got all these, this recording equipment. And so I do like a, a one to two minute monologue from an NPC, sometimes of which is directly related to where they're going, sometimes related to where they've been. And sometimes an NPC they haven't seen in like three months game time, uh, you know, and, but what are they doing now? And then again, they get to sort of see the consequences of their actions. Like you did all this stuff in Waterdeep and then, and then hightail it out of there. What's going on with these people back in Waterdeep? How how you know how have your actions sort of carried forward, and why do they matter, yeah, right? Good. And and that's yeah. added. but but I do it all before the game, right? I, I I the day or the few hours before, or sometimes a few days before, I send them a message and I say, here's a link to the latest newsletter, or here's a link to the to the latest monologue, 
uh, and they can sort of peruse it at their own uh, when, when they want to, or they can ignore it too. I know that there are several of those things that never got read by some of the players or listened to by some of the players, and that's fine too. Um, they can consume what they're interested in. We have a friend whose game Brandis is playing in who does a like setting newsletter thing that's really extremely cool. Um, and that actually leads to if you're going to do bigger pieces of lore, something or, or something like a gazetteer, um, uh, connect in world stuff, uh, if you can make it funny or make parts of it funny. Uh, you will have a lot more luck with it, and yeah. in some cases, it may just go down into the annals of your group's history. Like, um, in Nero Atlanta, there was a random text prop on a random thing that almost didn't get picked up. It was uh, called the Journal of Heron Row, and it was the diary of this guy who's this, like, mad bomber what bombed at midnight traps rogue who is just over the top and insane and was flipping hilarious to the point where like people who never played Nero, this is me. I never played Nero encountered it, thought it was the best thing. And later <laughs> I'm like babbling about it to the person who wrote it 25 <laughs> years later. Who's like, Oh my awesome. God. <laughs> awesome. Well, and like the Bridgertons type thing too, maybe. Oh, and oh. I actually used Heron Row and stuff from it in a tabletop game I ran that one of the that the person who found the text prop happened to be playing, and mm. and she totally flipped out about it. But but it was really nice, and everyone had a great time, and it wound up conveying a lot about what was going on in the thing. When you're talking about you know whatever the delivery method is right, uh, for the lore. You also, the other thing that I have sort of found is whatever the form is uh, of the information, whatever the delivery method is, um, I guess this is sort of what you just mentioned, right? Making it memorable, which funny is a great way, right? Um, and we've talked a lot about dropping lore for things that have already happened in the campaign, right? This does work looking forward to, you just have to be careful that it's not too far forward. Um, but if you can also give them, uh, you know, think of how you set up adventure hooks, for example, right? And then sort of wrap that into, maybe they don't have to go on a quest to find the MacGuffin, but maybe this is a story, a legend, a fable, a myth, whatever, that has enough of a connection to whatever they're doing that they think, oh, maybe this will be useful, you know, later down the road. Maybe they know that they're, you know, the temple that they're going to is full of puzzles and it was a temple of the god of <laughs> written history. Okay, this is a terrible example. But, um, <laughs> you know, whatever it is, if they know that something is coming and you can, uh, you can mm, telegraph, I guess, because again, we don't want to be too subtle, but telegraph that the stuff that is here is connected in some way to what's coming. That works just as well, mostly, is if you do it about stuff that has already happened, right? But it can't oh, yeah. be too far out because then, you know, what we've talked about, they're going to hear it differently, mm -hmm. they're going to forget it, they're going to remember it differently, and by the time it becomes relevant, eh. So, right, so this really only works in short time spans, but hinting at the future, if you do it clearly enough, can also be a way to get yeah. them to well, really remember it. You're basically telling them, 
hey, remember this. This is going to inform future things. We need to know this for the immediate future. And if you do that repeatedly, mm-hmm. I would I would bet, I haven't tested this, but I'm betting you'll be able to draw out the time between drop and payoff because your players have built up trust that this thing that you telegraphed was important, even if it's not important immediately, it's going to be important shortly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you should probably mean it. Well, and I think or I find, you might have been that well situation. Yeah, I, fi- I find even mistakes from sometimes when I'm trying to do the thing that I that I poo pooed myself for doing in the past, and that I give them lore early on to have it be a big reveal later on that it's important, right? Um, I find hmm. that I can still do that. I just don't be subtle about it later on. Like I don't feel the need to necessarily telegraph what lore is super important at the time. Um, like you were talking about, but like when it becomes relevant, I'll just tell them you remember this thing, and 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 then they're like, it still has the impact. They're like, oh, I remember you telling us that thing. Whoa, I didn't realize that was going to be a big deal. Right? The the reveal is still there. The impact is still there. Sometimes it drives me a, a little bit crazy. I'll, I'll listen to actual play uh, games or whatever, and I and I hear players struggling to try to remember a thing that their players went through, and the DM's like, "Oh, make a history check, make an intelligence check to remember that the thing or whatever." It's like just let them remember it. Like if it, if it's going to make the game and the story and the setting better, just. Just tell them, like, oh no, yeah, this is a thing. It happened. You, you did, you did this. You, you heard this. You yep. learned this. You know, one hundred percent agree. Both, both as a player and a DM. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, usually if I'm playing a game, that not always. Brandis is running it, and he does that, and I appreciate it every single time. Yep. If he goes, your player, your character would absolutely have remembered that. I'm not going to punish you for being in the moment, not remembering and i try to do that also because i care more about what the characters should know than i care about what the player remembers right at this moment and as somebody with a crap memory (laughs) um, you know i I don't ever want (laughs) to hold that against somebody and for anybody who doesn't know uh rabbit as well as the the those of us chatting uh to rabbit know her she's referred to brandis a few times that is brandis stoddard who's a regular on the show um and so we all know brandis but i don't know if everybody and a a co-host of the tome show news and the edition wars and uh regular guests Mm -hmm. on other shows so yeah yeah, he's nice i like him (laughs) (laughs) Well, he certainly married well. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just want to really quickly point out something that that I want to emphasize that you said, Rabbit, which is the more you do it, the more your players get it and understand it and trust it. And that's also really important, right? It, it ultimately doesn't matter so much how you do this every time you do it, just that your players see it regularly enough, trust you, understand, which is where you have those out-of-character conversations. Oh, remember this thing that happened? Yeah, that actually is important now because X, Y, Z. Just saying that out-of-character is is fine. And you can get away with a lot, right? Uh, some of my tables, particularly my podcast table, we, we do occasionally roll for memory things because we know and like and trust each other and understand the story that we're telling. And if they roll crappy, then it becomes a gag. It becomes a bit. It becomes a fun thing in the story that we are telling. And then, you know, I circle back and I say, okay, but your friend remembers, blah, 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 right? You can do just about anything 
with the consent of your players. Uh, <laughs> as long as you do it consistently, right, and you you are making clear what it is you're doing and why you're doing it, your players will learn. You know, yeah, it'll it'll become second nature. If you're trying to do a high tension game, for for example, that's very action packed and very high pressure, or has a Call of Cthulhu esque element in it, where um, then having a memory role because this is a high pressure, intense situation, it might just go out of your head. You might have, you know, tip of the tongue syndrome, and you want to mechanize that. That's co- that could be really cool. Uh, it could be that you are you absolutely know this, but if you but it, it could go out of your head at the wrong moment. But if you're going to do that, several things: one, already have a high level of trust; uh, two, make sure it's tonally appropriate; uh, three, limit how much it screws people, yeah. as in don't make it, and then you can't move forward because right. that's actually going to screw you as right. the DM, because now you have to give them some other way out. I mean, unless you're doing what Tomb of Horrors, Tomb of Annihilation, the whole point is, oh, now you die, reset. <laughs> <laughs> nothing wrong Nothing yeah. wrong with the, with the con tourney style game if people signed up for that. But yeah. again, that goes to, you know, know the, everyone should know the aesthetic. And I find a lot of times when... Um, and clearly this isn't what Eugenio just described, but a lot of times when I hear DMs or when I have been the DM who said, roll me an intelligence check to see if you remember this thing that happened earlier in the campaign, it is a DM trying to punish a player mm-hmm. um, because they didn't take good enough notes or they weren't paying good enough attention to your game or whatever. And uh, you're always going to have a better game if you don't ever try to punish your player. Right now, it's okay yes. for the the characters to have consequences, but s- stop trying to punish your friends for not having fun the way you want them to. You know? Yes, yes. And, and a, and a, your players are absolutely going to notice if uh, one of the players always has to roll to remember something, and you just give information to another player at mm. your table. They will always notice. They will always remember. They will hold it against you. They will have less trust for you as a as a DM. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's, it is, I'm sure it's been said on the tomb show before, right? It is bad design to put something absolutely necessary to progress the story and the adventure behind a successful role, because inevitably they will not succeed. And that goes for lore too. And And if that ends the campaign, then you're done, right? (laughs) Then there it is, right? They're going to go in circles or they're going to get frustrated and that will end the campaign. Right. And and you always have a, always have a back door. Well, that's exactly my was going to be my next point, which is you can still you can still have roles and mechanics and tension in lore discovery. It just can't be like an on off binary. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go back to the journals that I used uh, for the show. They were the players were always going to find enough journal entries to get the story of the world like they needed. What I did was I put them, I, uh, rather than putting will they find it behind the mechanics, I put what order are they finding these in behind the mechanics? So they got this journal all out of order and had to then piece it together to figure out what the chronology was, X, Y, Z. It was still exciting. It was still engaging, but there was never a danger that they just weren't going to find out what was going on in this world, which would have very quickly, uh, if not ended, made our campaign very boring. <laughs> well, my 
goodness, you just gave me a really good idea for how to run something I was doing in a totally different format as a tabletop right. game. Yeah, right. <laughs> Yay. Our <So>, hands. <laughs> I had a question of a kind of a, so we talked about like the big tome of all the things you need to know before the game starts. And we talked about information radiators and other types of things during the game to get information out there. But I feel like there's also a different way, maybe not the big tome, you could have it, um, where we could use character building and particularly th- like lining up stuff like bonds and other things mm-hmm. to help prime the pump for lore and also make it collaborative because it's before anything's gone in front of the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, do we want to talk about that at all? Oh, yeah. I'll oftentimes do that in my session zero. I'll come up with like 15 or 20 statements or questions, and you know, things like one of you knows this NPC that's maybe going to be an important part of the lore or an important NPC later in the campaign or I anticipate they will be. Uh, and, then, and then so then it's like one of you knows this NPC. Which of you is it and how do you know them, right? And that's part of our character building in, during session zero. So I'll do some of stuff like that. Is that what you're talking about? Um, related, um, so, I mean, that's, that's part of why I put the information that I put on my, uh, on my player's wiki where it is, mm-hmm. um, because it's stuff that they could potentially use to either collaboratively build a setting. I didn't think of ideals, bonds, and flaws, but that's, that's pretty good. That's mm-hmm. super good. I love that. Um, and have a character whose ideals, bonds, and flaws change as, as she picks up setting stuff as well, which yeah. which I think is a good thing to do. But um, that made me think of, like, in your session zero, when the players are even thinking about where they come from and who they are, mm-hmm. that speaks to the question of do they know each other or not. And I mm. think in a, a very lore-dense campaign, sometimes it's easier and better to have them already know each other and so they can have a shared connection to something you can go really deep on instead of okay now i have to go at least somewhat deep on a bunch of different pieces of the setting because players not not always but oftentimes players trying to figure out how to share the interesting secrets they learned because they're from the bizarre corner of uh, Nowaria and the others from East Bumble. Um, (laughs) You know, where the tomb of the dead god is. And it's cool when they have secrets that they can dole out over the course of a campaign. But as you're throwing puzzles and other things at them, it can wind up being where now a player is stuck in the position of kind of trying to give an awkward lore dump and they're not even <laughs> sure about everything because they're not the DM. Um, I don't think one is necessarily better than the other, but if you're thinking about, okay, what do, where do I want the focus to be mm. on uh, disparate players sharing stuff or mm. Mm, they need to start with a connection because I'm going to be throwing stuff at them from the start of play. If it's that latter one, you may want them to not have to worry about finding each other out. Uh, And if it's the other, then you may want them to be disparate. You give them all, say, you get a setting secret, and you get a setting secret, and you get a setting (laughs) secret. And, um, And they get to decide when they 
reveal those you know when it makes sense but they'll probably be looking for an opportunity because secrets are interesting when they're shared <laughs> and we see that a lot in novels right because like uh wheel of time starts out with this very small town where they all know each other uh, uh lord of the rings uh, if you concentrate mainly on the hobbits part they all know each other and then we start spiraling out and so where you start the story kind of also probably ties into that if you're going to start when they're low level they you could always start them in a tavern. They just all happen to be there and something happens. But more likely, they're probably going to know each other because they're hanging out. Well, and I tend to um, – I, I steal – I think it's – I steal the idea from Fiasco that I really like to do in my Session Zero, which is like every character has some sort of relationship with one other or two other characters at the table and create this sort of web. And so they don't – it's not like they're already a party. But they already have – everybody has this web of connection. So if somebody's yeah. d- drawn in, there's threads that pull the other ones in. But that allows them to have the cohesiveness and the shared background and shared lore. They might have a shared secret that's even more likely to come. I've definitely had those players who like have a, a character secret that they have it in their head. Now I'm just going to keep this a secret because that's part of my character. It's a secret. And they never <laughs> It never gets revealed. Yeah. And that's like that, – that's not fun. But if there's two of you, there might be some tension there. And the secret might come out, right? Uh, and yeah. that, but that also allows you to be a little bit more spread out. Hey, you have a relationship because you both were part of this temple over here, and now we get to learn a little mm. bit about the lore of that temple and that god and that city. And you, you were, were monster hunters for the monster hunter guild, and now we've revealed there's a monster hunter guild. And so there's all these different uh, things that we can reveal about the setting through the relationships that the characters have before the game started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I guess I'd say take advantage of what it is the players want to do and build the stuff that you intend uh, intend to reveal around that even before the game starts. Mm-hmm. And Justin Files does that too. The interesting thing there is that it's set in basically the modern day world so you can just kind of like take what most people know about stuff uh, and then and open up Google and see what like the landmarks in Las Vegas are. Right. So, so you could question, see that. Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was going to you finish your thought, but I had a question for you about that. Uh, do you find modern day setting stuff when it comes to uh, interesting lore and other things easier or harder mm. or or just different challenges? Because I, I find it actually almost like it's an additional obstacle when I have to deal with real world assumptions too. Right. And and I and I, and and the hard part is that I found even in my games that are set in like a fantasy setting that I still have to deal with the real world assumptions. So like I took um you know we know that people used to drink a lot more when they were pregnant because nobody knew. Uh so having a beer uh might not be a big thing, but that happened in my game in a setting where that would have been okay and people were like aghast that a, a pregnant woman in the in a fantasy medieval sig- mm. setting might have had a beer. <laughs> so I think it's I think it's something um that, and that's, I, I think, kind of what those types of experiences are what made me make that initial opening statement because I probably should have just said, hey, don't think of this as modern day world. But I agree that it, it can be difficult. That's why it's interesting how um, Dresden kind of set, my when I've played it, we kind of just set up by talking through all of those things. We talk about what assumptions we're going to make about the place. 
make it clear, I don't know anything about Vegas other than what I read in my Google. So please don't <laughs> hold yeah. me to how the roads work there. I was running a um, I was running a mage game that actually wound up in Vegas, <laughs> and uh, and I had Google open. I was going, oh, I need to find a neighborhood they could go to. Which hotel are they at? <laughs> oh my god. I find because because I'll play games that do this. I'm actually I've actually I've never played Dresden Files, but I've been reading it lately because my players decided when we're done with the current campaign, that's one of the things we're going to play. So I just bought it last week and I've been reading it this this week. Um, Dresden Files Fate. Or? Fate, yeah. Yeah, um, I played it. Yeah, and then um, I'm also I but I played a lot of Torg, and Torg is set in sort of the in fact they call it the near now. It's it's kind of now, but just a little bit ahead of now. Um, uh, and so there's a lot of that too, even if it's been, even if an area has been changed by a certain reality or whatever, like there's still elements of, like I, I wrote, uh, an adventure in, that was in one of the, the box sets, uh, one of the books that they published for one of the, the settings for Torg and it was set in, in Stockholm. And so I did a bunch of reading on, places in Stockholm that I could like tweak and give it this fantasy sort of element to it and and but you know that's clearly like there's this well-known monument and right across the street from it was is is in the modern world today a McDonald's so you know there's now a tavern across the street that happens to look almost exactly like the the classic McDonald's building style you know uh so I you know you throw in little things like that but like at the same time whether it's Dresden or Torg or whatever Whatever, like it's also in the like it's the real world but it's not so like if mm-hmm. i get something wrong and somebody knows i get something wrong i kind of don't care i'm the other i'm the other one i want it to I don't want to get something wrong if it's a real world, which means in a real world game, it's like I have to do a ton of homework and it's very stressful. But it's not the real world. There's no wizards in the real world. (laughs) What? uh, Actually, in the Dresden Files game, we played like I was playing a regular human because funny story, regular humans are way overpowered in Dresden Files. Okay. uh, But but yeah, uh, it was set in Atlanta. So she actually had an aspect that was uh, lives close to Grady, and it gave her bonuses <laughs> on dealing with gunshot wounds because <laughs> Grady is where you go if you got a gunshot. <laughs> and but but that's that's the kind of thing, and maybe it's a failing on my part where I'm like, nah, it has to be super real world, <laughs> and. and I'm actually kind of saying, don't be like me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, cool. (laughs) It can can wind up killing your enjoyment if you get that bug down. (laughs) But but one of the interesting things that happens during like Dresden file character creation is that you kind of create your own lore, as we were talking about before, like how the characters interact with each other and stuff. But there's still obviously a setting that you may not, while you're doing character creation, even know fully about that's more um, in that other area. And th- and you can do the same thing in the fantasy settings. It's just potentially a little more conversation between you and the DM, it, particularly if it's a DM designed or the DM's the only person that knows the lore enough. Um, but it can get you really interesting and allow, the, allow people to, one, help build the lore uh, for stuff, and then they can feel more comfortable diving into the game. Mm-hmm. And... Uh- 
Yeah, that's that's probably another thing that could be a whole other episode is is the player created lore, DM created lore, collaborative uh, collaborative lore and setting content and yeah. not which is better or or what because they all have pros and cons, mm-hmm. but kind of what to keep in mind when you're going with either route because there are times when as a player i don't want to create nothing unless it has to do with my character i just want to sit back roll all that's on the dm and (laughs) uh and and i'll get frozen if i'm asked to generate something and then when i'm running a game i'm like nope this is the way the world is Mm -hmm. and uh, and then there's times when it's more like collaborative writing. But it's just a very different mindset for each. And a lot of times players don't want to necessarily, like a lot of players don't want to play in an unwritten novel. Right. I think is a- Yeah. So we have been talking for over an hour and 15 minutes. I wrote four <laughs> guiding questions to get us started. And Sounds uh, right. we've, we've hit all four topics, even though I only ever asked That's one good. of the questions. Uh, so, <laughs> so uh, I think unless somebody has some burning final thoughts you want to get out, um, we're going to start wrapping things up. So does anybody have any final thoughts before we finish up? Uh, I had exactly one, Please. which was about uh, we were we were talking about secrets and Jeff, you touched on this um, about the the propensity to trying to keep them and sit on them. Don't, whether you're a player or a GM, uh, be thinking about when is the right time to reveal them because a secret unrevealed, whatever Damon Lindelhoff thinks, is uninteresting. I've, I've only ever, yeah, right. I've only ever seen one time that a player had a secret and they kept it a secret until the very end of the campaign and it worked. And that's that's in my 33 mm-hmm. years of playing D&D. Uh, it was only one time, and it was because the the happy-go-lucky, goofy gnome character uh, was secretly uh, some evil cultist or whatever the entire campaign. And it was never revealed <laughs> until there was a near TPK where he was the only player to survive. And then he and the mm-hmm. DM did a little like uh, epilogue where it was revealed that he was the bad guy all along. And that was that worked really well. Every other time I've seen it happen, it falls on its face and it's just not worth trying. So so mm-hmm. Rabbit is absolutely right. Yeah. And it still worked at the point of reveal. She, oh, yeah. But, right, that, right. but that goes to if it never goes in front of the players or it comes out on screen, so to speak, it didn't happen. Yeah. The only thing that I'll say, uh, if I think I probably do this every time I'm here because it helps my brain, uh, which is just to, like pull – a big thought from everything we've talked about. And the thing I kept hearing is do your lore dumps however you want, as long as your players trust you. But almost everything that we said that wasn't the tome that we hand you at the top, a lot of our advice is involve your characters and your players. Let them be a part of either the discovery or the lore itself, because that will connect them to it. However you do it is up to you. But if you can connect your players and your PCs, do it that way. All right. In that case, with that very uh, good summary of of big themes uh, done, I'm going to go ahead and call it the end of the episode. Uh, We just need we need to have uh, have you on every episode, Eugenio. 
where <laughs> where <laughs> even episodes where you're not and a I guest, agree. you can you can just sort of sit yeah. in the background and listen, and then at the end give your sort of summary of, of big ideas. Every episode. I mean, look, if you catch me when I'm actually caught up on my podcast <laughs> playlist, I could probably send it to you within a day. This is what this was about. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yehidio is always a joy, though. <laughs> oh, always, and always. and you, Rabbit. It's and been too long. This is Very good. much so. This is a panel that we need to uh, replicate more often. <laughs> uh, so then we're going to go ahead and wrap up the episode and call it the end. We'd like to say thank you to our sponsor, Galder's Gazetteer. And we'd like to say also say thank you to our guest, Henio. Where can folks find you? Yeah, uh, you can follow me on Twitter is sort of the most central place. I'm at DM Jazzy Hands. There it is. I finally revealed the truth. Uh, so you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, that's a big central place. The podcast that I kept talking about is called The Last Refuge. Uh, we are I, we just recorded the 11th and 12th episodes of our eighth season yesterday. Uh, so you can check that out wherever podcasts are found. The Last Refuge. Uh, and then I'm around the Twitches. I am I play with the Rivals of Waterdeep on Sundays. I play with Into the Motherlands on Wednesdays. We'll be back in August. Um, but yeah, you can find me around uh, and keep track of me mostly on Twitter. And I can say awesome. that The Last Refuge is not only a, a, a fantastic um, actual play podcast, but there is a point. Uh, was it in the interim between season one and two or between two and three where there is a two, musical yeah. episode? That if you if you do not absolutely fall in love by that point, uh, it is not the show for you. But it is oh my every actual play podcast needs to have that musical episode. And honestly, I, I'm kind of mad you don't do it every episode now. <laughs> Tell the players to get on yep, those yeah. lyric parodies. Yeah. <laughs> I'm deeply intrigued by this. Mm-hmm. This is relevant to my interests. Even. Yeah, yeah. No, it, 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 it is fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Rabbit, where can folks find you? Uh, pretty much exclusively on Twitter these days. Um, at Cadillac. Uh, that's C A U D E L A C. Um, I think that's my Patreon handle too, where I do like illuminated manuscript stuff and secondary world fiction and other things like that. But uh, I would mention my blog, but it's been defunct for like two years now. And if I ever get it undefunct, then I will mention it again. Nice. And then sometimes I, I'm a guest on here or on Edition uh, uh, Wars with uh, my husband Brandis and the awesome Indomitable Sam. Is that just so we'd make you sound better? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's just because if I can find an opportunity to say nice things about Sam, I I, I completely will. Yeah. No, Sam, Sam was great. And in fact, this the idea for this episode originally sparked from listening to an edition wars where they were talking about a moment of of how to reveal lore in, from the DMG that they were talking about. I don't remember which episode it was. Oh it was my god, recent. it's recursive! Uh, yeah, no. So it, it goes around, right? Uh, I get my inspiration yeah. wherever I can, and oftentimes it's from That's them. Right. So. <laughs> no, it's good. And we'd also like to say thank you to all of you who support us by being patrons at patreon.com slash show. If you want to get a hold of the show, you can email thetomeshow at gmail.com. You can find Tracy on Twitter. She is at Sarah, that's with an H, Dark Magic. Uh, I am at Squatch, S-Q-U-A-C-H, and the show is at The Tome Show. And that's episode 353, where we had a massive lore dump done in four-part harmony 
on this episode of... <laughs> I'm on the wall.